thank you for joining another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today's going to be a dope episode because we have somebody who's brilliant, who does brilliant work, and has a story to tell, to say the least, but none other than Don Porter. How, first of all, how are you doing today? Uh, I am great today. Um, you know, it's it's September. We're back at it. We are back at it. I just think about the fact that, as my four-year-old son reminds me, Christmas is right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have four more months to make this year work. And you're talking about Christmas being around the corner. So anyway, we start each one of our shows the same way. It's kind of unique to my show um, in that we have our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And you've had a storied career as a producer, documentarian, and storyteller. Walk us through the arc of your career from the first project you produced to the work you've done most recently with Deadlock. Sure. Um, first, thanks. Thanks for having me. I love this show and I love what you do. So it's a real pleasure to be with you. Um, so I started um, as a lawyer. Um, I practiced for five years at a firm in Washington, D.C., big law firm, Baker Hostetler. Um, and then I moved to New York. I was I was in Washington. I moved to New York um, to go in-house to ABC television. And, you know, at the time, I mean, I think it's kind of a common story for a lot of women. I was newly married. I wanted to have a family. And I really wasn't seeing a lot of female lawyer partners who were able to, to, to balance. Some people could do it, but I, 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 didn't see a, I didn't see a model for me, the kind of parent I wanted to be and the kind of worker I wanted to be. So I went to ABC, felt like it was more stable hours. And then pretty quickly, I was in-house as a lawyer for a year. And then pretty quickly, um, I got offered a job in the news division doing news standards and practices. And the way that my boss organized that job is it wasn't what can you do legally as a reporter is what should you do? What are the ethics involved? So she used my law background. I was reading all the backup documents um, for investigative stories. Um, answering questions like, do we publish the name of uh, and face of a rape victim? Um, and our answer was always no. I was there during uh, when the Twin Towers fell and uh, she made the call really early, no footage of people jumping out of buildings. That's somebody's mother, that's somebody's father, that's somebody's you know loved one. Um, so it was really, it really got me thinking about the ethics of what we do in media. Um, well, this sounds like a pastime. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you. Unfortunately, I just, I just always like to tell people there is there is a unit that does this work, and people are, you know, however futile it can seem, sometimes there are people who are thinking about these ethical issues, and I think that that really served me well when I switched to making my own films. So um, I went over to A and E Television. I worked in cable for a bit. And then that was really around the time that quote unquote reality TV was really flourishing. And um, I thought I could do this. <laughs> There's no mystery magic to it. You have to work hard. You have to, you know, my background as a lawyer, I was a litigator and that really prepared me really well for being a documentarian. Because if you think about it, I took a lot of depositions so what we do is we listen to people's stories and then we take things that are complicated as lawyers and we try and make them understandable. And that's a lot of what you're doing as a documentary director, producer. You're trying to take something 
large and tell a story with what you're seeing. Um, and then my ethics training was never forget that this is just your perspective. My way is not the truth. It is what I see. And I try and be transparent with the audience that um, while I'm not on camera, that I am, I am there. You're seeing it through my eyes. You're seeing it through my experience. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Let's talk about the Supreme Court and deadlock, if you don't mind. Um, I guess the, the, the very... 50,000 foot somewhat generic question that I know you've thought about as you were doing this and you've been thinking about since. Why did you do this film? And even more importantly, what do you want people to take away from it? And, and in this environment where I laughed about ethics earlier and in this environment where we're so polarized, what do you want people to take from this film? You know, um, a lot of my work has centered on legal issues. My first film is a film called Gideon's Army about public defenders. Um, and so, you know, I'm a person who believes in the promise of this country and in the structures that we've set up to protect the weakest among us. And so as I've watched with increasing concern what is happening with this Supreme Court, and, and really what I mean, what I've focused on a lot is the loss of respect for the court and the court's decisions. And... Um, you don't always have to like the decision a court comes to, but if you respect the way that the decisions are being made and you feel like the court is at least being fair, you accept them. And we are increasingly coming to a place where people don't feel like the court is honoring um, its ethics. The Supreme Court is the only judicial body in this country that does not have a formal code of ethics. And that has become painstakingly plain in the last several months as we focused on some clear abuses of power. And that's what they are. And we have to call them what they are. And you just touched on something. I mean, I, I think it's the the timing of this cannot be more right because of the quote unquote lack of trust, as you called it, in our court, which is which is very real. One of the things that I thought about when I was preparing to interview you is, you know, when you're producing films around Congress, that seems to be, I don't want to say straightforward, but it, a decently easy because it's an open institution, right? And there's a free flow of information both ways. Um, the same with the executive branch. However, I want to talk about your process because it seems like the Supreme Court's a harder institution to write about because we don't always have much to go on other than what the court tells you and the justices themselves, I mean, aren't responsive most times. How do you tell the kinds of stories that you tell in projects like Deadlock when it comes to an institution as cloistered as the Supreme Court? 
Cloistered is exactly the right word. Um, Look at that SAT word. <laughs> got it. <laughs> your Christmas is going to be good. Um, you know, um, that's one of the, you know, the, the first question you asked was why do this? And, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this series is to shed some light on how the court makes it decision, its decisions, excuse me, but also to point out how the justices are appointed. How did they get to this powerful position? Um, this is a lifetime appointment. They take a select number of cases that affect all of us um, intimately. So I wanted to kind of back up um, the present day reporters, you know, the, the, the newspapers and, and news networks, they can tell you about the, you know, news of the day. But what I wanted to do is provide people a framework to say, how did we get here? Um, and that's why we start in episode one with, um, you know, the Warren court, but also telling the story of Thurgood Marshall, because as in a time when the court is rapidly losing our respect, I wanted to remind people it hasn't always been that way and it doesn't have to be this way. So when you think of Thurgood Marshall, when you think of somebody who grew up in segregation and Marshall's career, it is such an unlikely journey that he takes to become one of the most important legal figures in American history. Marshall has the most Supreme Court victories of any lawyer before he even gets to the court. And before all of that, he's instrumental in desegregating the army. He's instrumental in, of course, most of the architecture of desegregation of this country. And so that is a really important story for everyone in this country to be proud of and to remember and to think that's what we have done once upon a time. That's the legacy that we're looking to protect. And that's what we should be thinking about. We can't just throw up our hands and say, you know, we give up on the court. That our, our constitutional democracy does not work if we give up on the Supreme Court of the United States. That's funny you bring up Thurgood Marshall because I've made the quote and I've actually restated it again in a book I'm writing, which is due to my editor four days ago, but hopefully they get it today. Um, but I always say that one of the cruelest tricks this country ever pulled on Black folk was replacing Clarence was replacing Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas. And you, you need not, you don't have to comment on that. But one of the questions I do want to talk about is one of the themes that you you center around in deadlock is the legitimacy of the court. And a lot of the behavior of Justice Thomas, whether or not you're a supporter or not, is at the forefront of that. And you also focus on what happens when legitimacy is lost. How did you treat this topic in the film? Um, you know, one of the things is um, explaining how decisions are made and explaining why it's important to respect precedent. And Justice Marshall, you know, as he retired in his last, you know, uh, conference, press conference as a justice, says, you know, there's no difference between a white snake and a black snake. They both bite. And what he's saying is don't appoint a black person. You know, all skin folk are not kin folk. Clarence Thomas has brought shame to the court. I will say that unequivocally. Um, and he brings shame to the court in his and disrespect to the court um, by not behaving in an ethical manner. So um, 
you know, what we're looking at in this series is how do the justices make these difficult decisions? You know, I think some people think it's like Moses, you know, there's a there's a right decision in the air and the justices just pull it down. And of course, that's not the case. The justices are interpreting the Constitution today. You know, once upon a time, this court decided that Black people were three-fifths of a person. This court would not decide that. Um, and so how have we evolved and how do we keep this institution living and breathing? So we talked to a lot of Supreme Court clerks. We talked to a number of Supreme Court uh, experts. And one thing I tried really hard to do was not have it just maybe preaching to the choir. You know, I am on the more liberal side of things politically, but um, it was really important to, to have people, conservative voices. So we have Don Ayers, who was a Reagan uh, Justice Department official, Ted Olson, who oh, argues for, for, you know, for the Bush camp. Um, you know, we have uh, one of Scalia's clerks. So reaching out to those conservative voices. And I will tell you to a person, no one is happy about how the court is being perceived or how it's uh, processing right now. Everyone is concerned. Um, and that tells you something about where we are. And that, you know, I think I think people are paying attention to the court now because it's really hitting home. When you overturn Roe v. Wade, um, it's not just abortion rights that are being challenged. Clarence Thomas, um, your favorite cousin, invites the court to overturn gay marriage, invites the court to overturn the right for married couples to use contraception. Oh, yeah. That is oh, what we're talking about. It's slow because it goes all the way back to loving. And that you, is exactly if, right. And Mr. Really in, in an interracial marriage, it's the only right that he doesn't call out by name. Yeah. That is hypocrisy at its at its best. And we need to, you know, call it out when we see it. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to do is say, let's call this out when we see it, but then let's not just throw up our hands in disgust or frustration, let's actually push our leaders to make this better. So let me ask you this. I mean, you have a court that's leaking opinions, um, ignoring precedent, um, and you have justices like Thomas and Alito that are so closely aligned with these conservative think tanks. For people who don't follow the court as closely, are we seeing a court that is more ideologically inclined than it's been before? Or has the court always had this bent one way or another um, in some shape, form or fashion? I think in prior years, you had a bit more balance. You know, this court has been a center right court for a long time. And, and that's part of the story that we're telling in four hours across this series. President Nixon had four appointments to the Supreme Court. President Reagan had four appointments to the Supreme Court. Trump had three. So in our 50 years, um, more Republicans have been appointing justices. That doesn't always mean the justices do what the presidents like, um, but it tells you the kinds of justices they're looking for. So Trump campaigns on the promise that he will appoint justices with a political ideology. He campaigns on that promise. It's the same thing that Nixon did and that Ronald Reagan did. And it's so interesting that they are all successful. Those are all successful candidates. So um, what's different today 
is the power of the Federalist Society. So you have for the last few decades, you have an institution that is grooming very conservative ideological justices. You have judges signaling to the to the Federalist Society, put me in coach, I will, you know, make decisions that you will be happy with. So, um, you know, is it a coincidence that Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, and um, Roberts are all uh, justices that are arguing, uh, that are advising in Bush v. Gore in how to get and how to stop the election? Is that a coincidence? Um, they're all Federalist Society, you know, mentees. So I think Justice Roberts, who is a very conservative person, I think is looking with alarm at perhaps we've gone too far. Perhaps we've kind of turned the corner, jumped the shark, whatever you want to say. Um, but there's a real concern that the wheels are off of this court and that we need to do something to rein that back in to keep public trust. And, and that is really what the court's power is. All they have, they don't have an army. They don't have a budget. They don't have a purse. They have you and I deciding that we will obey. And you can tell Justice Roberts now is focused on rebuilding that public trust. It's, it's, it's apparent that he's even, in some of his rulings, it, it feels like he's even abandoned, um, you know, what we believe to be his conservative streak to rule in a fashion of a greater good. It may not be precedent per se, but it's a greater good for the public trust of, of the court. You, you mentioned a lot particularly of the influence of, you know, there's a lot of influence of money now of um, different external influences, particularly from the right. But one of the things I talk about a lot on this show is that the left and Democrats just can't get their shit together. They just, they, they, they like the bad news bears when it comes to the court. And I blame Rahm Emanuel. That's a whole nother thing. It dates all the way back to when he was chief of staff and act like he didn't have enough time to focus on the courts. But my question to you is how does, how does deadlock, um, how does it focus on this um, lack of a robust response from the left or from the Democratic Party um, to this influence you see or concerted influence from billionaires and organized efforts from think tanks on the right? Yeah, you know, there's there's a couple of really key things um, that we look at. One is the elimination of the filibuster. So, you know, justices are now confirmed with a majority vote. Um and uh, it'll be very interesting to see kind of what happens in the future. But the other thing is, you know, the Biden administration is is not responding to people's calls for there are some things that the president can do by executive order. The president could increase the size of the court. There are some radical things, but maybe this is these are radical times. You know, this court, this ideologically conservative court that is bound and determined to upend our civil rights as we understand them is in place for the next 30 years. If we do not have ethics rules imposed, if we do not consider some uh, you know, reforms to the court, um, this is what we're going to be living with unless somebody steps down, is impeached, um, uh, you know, or resigns voluntarily. So um you know, perhaps we're, we're the frog in the pot and, and the water is boiling. Um, and so, you know, we need to, I think that, that you're right. We have a democratic, you know, president, we have a democratic Senate. Um, let's act like the house is on fire because it is. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Who are some of the key players right now with the court? Where does the money come from? And how does this compare to courts of... Let's just throw it out. One of the greatest courts we've or most consequential courts we've had, which is the Chief Justice Warren Court. You know, the Warren Court is so interesting because Warren is a really unlikely, you know, kind of champion for equality. He signs the order interning, uh, allowing the internment of Japanese Americans. And so when Warren takes the court, by the way, Justice Warren had no confirmation hearing. He was literally appointed. So when we're all up in arms about affirmative action, he was promised a job and he got it. And that job, he comes from being governor of California and he becomes uh, the, the chief justice of the United States. So, you know, I guess some affirmative action is OK for for some people, but not for others. So, you know, but Warren, um, the power that he exercised, he he made sure that cases like Brown v. Board, Brown v. Board is a nine to zero decision. And he made sure he could have, he could have had it be eight one, but he literally isolates the only holdout. And he says, it's all you now. Do you want to be the person who says that separate is, is equal? And that kind of leadership, that's what we're looking for right now. And that's the question to Justice Roberts, who is increasingly, the, the people have to keep the pressure on him because Roberts is an institutionalist and he does not want to be known as the man that lost the court. That is a black mark that is going to be in his Wikipedia page forever. And I don't think that's what he wants. So right now you have some very powerful forces. Like I said, you know, Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, they have a billion dollar war chest in order to groom and bring up conservative judges all the way through. And so the Democrats have to get serious about, you know, playing hardball. Um, in terms of not, you know, they need to have some ethics rules. They need to think about some, you know, proposals. Um, and they also need to campaign on the court because that has worked for the Republicans and it can work for the Democrats. We have missed that. And I've been preaching that. I mean, we we never found it to be a sexy issue until Trump got three appointments. Let me ask you the most important question of the show, Don, which is how can listeners watch Deadlock and how can they follow you on social media. Yes. Um, so Deadlocked is going to be on uh, Paramount Plus with Showtime on September 22nd. Um, and uh, I really do hope everyone will tune in. We've been getting a lot of great press about it. Um, I am I'm on threads now. I don't know my username, but I'm there. You can look for me. <laughs> yeah, I was on threads. I think I did like four threads and I ain't been back over there in about a month. So I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying try to keep Threads is like the happy place, you know, like that show, The Good Place, like Threads yes. is like the good place. And then I go back to to Twitter every once in a while to just, you know, remind me of why I don't want to be there. So exactly, exactly. And last question, I got in trouble with this from people before, but I just got to ask you, are there any projects that you can tell us about? Because somebody said some projects on my show they weren't supposed to mention and got in all types of studio trouble. Uh, but is there anything that you can mention? 
I'm doing, um, you know, after being, so we've been working on this uh, series for three years. So um, I needed a kind of a little politics cleanse. Um, and the, um, what I'm working on now is the the documentary about Luther Vandross. Oh, and that's going to be good. It is fire. It is fire. Um, so I cannot wait to share it with, uh, Luther was a, a savant, a genius, um, was not quite given his due as famous as he is. Um, you know, and there's a big story about how black artists are, are marketed or pigeonholed. Um, and, you know, the glass ceiling for even some of our most talented uh, performers. So I'm really, really excited about that. And you're going to tell everything in that story now? We're going to tell everything. You're going to explore everything? And okay. All right. Yeah. Well, you'll have to watch, right? I will. Trust me, I will. I'm going to be watching. That's something I watch with my mama. <laughs> All right. I want everyone to go to the theater and watch because you will dance, you will laugh, you will cry, um, and um, all will be revealed. There you go. Well, look, I appreciate you, Don, for the work that you do. I cannot wait. Deadlocked. Everybody go check it out. Please go back and look at Mrs. Porter's catalog. Follow her work. Thank you for joining the Bakari Solis podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Love the show. Mm -hmm.